Good morning. How's everybody doing? You awake? All right. Good. You ready for a study? Because I have been studying all week, and man, do I like this text. This is a great portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. So get your Bibles ready, because we've got another good walk through the book of Philippians. When, uh, when Casey and I were, when I was a youth pastor at a little church up in uh, Bellflower, California, there was one mission trip that we took the kids on uh, to Utah, of all places. Uh, we went to Utah with the intention, these high school, about 20 high school kids, and we went with the intention of exposing them to the Mormon cult and helping them to learn about them and also to evangelize Mormons. This was a big task for high school students, as you can well guess, because uh, witnessing and speaking with a Mormon is a big task for even adults today. But anyhow, so we had months of preparation and planning, learning about the Mormons and uh, trying to identify how we could share with them what, what we believe uh, the truth of God to be according to the Scriptures. And they spent months and months of preparation getting ready. Uh, but one of the things that we forgot to prepare them for was the drive to Utah from Bellflower, California. And as you know, the drive to uh, Salt Lake City, Utah from about Los Angeles area is uh, not exactly the most exciting drive. Uh, in fact, it's, it's perhaps the most boring drive there possibly is, correct? Who has who driven from L.A. area to Salt Lake City. Has anybody driven that way? Has anybody, you know, joyfully and, and look, looks forward to that drive? Anyone out there? Oh, a few of you. Okay, good. Good. Well, I did not prepare these high school students for this journey. We're talking 8 or 10 or 12 hours. I don't even know how long it was. And you know the statement that was coming from their lips. You've heard the statement before and as parents, and you've said the statement before as children. And what is that statement? Are we there yet? That's right. Are we there yet? I had 20 high school students asking me every five minutes, are we there yet? And I would turn around and I would say, no, we have not arrived at our destination. Why don't you enjoy the journey? Why don't you look around and and look at the beautiful colors Why don't you look at God's creation and just enjoy the journey? Are we there yet? No, we have not arrived. The title of my message today is We Have Not Arrived. We Have Not Arrived. And that title is indicative of what Paul is going to be describing in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 17. In fact, we are going to see Paul very clearly explain to the Philippian Christians that they have not arrived in their walk with Christ. They have not achieved final perfection, and they still need to go on to maturity and to enjoy the journey that is before them. Not simply look ahead to the destination. We have not arrived. 
Do not just focus on the destination, Paul says, but enjoy the journey and lay hold of that journey here and now. Open up, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 to 11. Let me read it for you, and uh, then we'll pray and get right to it. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 17. Paul is writing from prison to the church at Philippi, and he is... uh, He is about to come see them in the very near future, but he's giving them words of instruction. This is what he says, Philippians 3, 12 to 17. Not that I have already attained, not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained... Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we worship you today. Thank you for the time of praise through song. And now, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to worship and to understand You better through Your Word. Help us now, Lord, to remove distractions. Help us to look upon Your Word with enlightened eyes by Your Spirit. And may we appropriate it to our lives. May we make it our own. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In order to really comprehend where I'm picking up in verse 12. We need to look back because Paul is mid-thought. Paul is mid-thought here. And Paul is saying, not that I have already attained. Well, well, what is he talking about? Well, I'd like to go back just a little bit and look at verses 8 to 11 just very briefly to refresh our memory from last Sunday about what Paul was focused on at the end of, uh, at the, uh, end of our last study. So take a look at Philippians 3, verses 8 to 11. This is what Paul says from last week. He says, Yet indeed I count all things lost, all my former human confidences in the, the law, the Jewish, uh, the, the, the Torah, circumcision. He says, I count all these things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul has left us with. From verses 8 to 11. And notice his intentions. He says, twice he says, I want to know Christ. 
both positionally in terms of his own righteousness through faith in Christ. He wants to know him as his eternal Savior. And experientially, he wants to know him and identify with his sufferings, with his death. He says that he wants to be found righteous in Christ, to gain Christ, to know the power of Christ's resurrection, if by any means he might attain resurrection. Now, as we approach our text today, verse 12 and following, um, permit me for just a moment uh, to get a bit technical. There are times when Scripture requires it, and this is one of those times. And for the next three or four minutes, we're, we're going to be discussing something rather uh, Technical, rather difficult, but hang on because there's a lot of fruit that will come from understanding this. So take a look again at verse 12 and the first part of verse 13. Paul says this, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold, also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Now what do you notice about Verse 12 and the start of verse 13. Well, if you'll notice the words in yellow, you'll see that they are all verbs, correct? But these verbs, while there are, while they are plentiful, there are six verbs, but interestingly enough, there are zero objects to these verbs. In other words, Paul is saying all these verbs. He, he's saying, I have not attained something. I have not been perfected in something. I have not laid hold of something. And so on and so on and so on. I am pressing on to something, but he doesn't say what it is that he's directing the, the verb. What is the object of the verb? And so this begs two questions. Number one, what is Paul referring to? And secondly, why is he being so vague? Why is he intentionally being so vague in verses 12 and 13? Now, these are the rather technical questions that we need to address. What has he not attained? In what is Paul not perfected? What is he pressing into? What is he laying hold of? What did Christ lay hold of in him? And what has he not apprehended? Now for some of you right now, you're looking at your New King James Bible and you're saying, that's easy. That's easy, Neil. Because it says in my New King James Bible in verse 11, take a look at verse 11. There we go that I, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, and then he goes on in verse 12 to say, not that I have already attained. Aha! Bingo! It's the resurrection. End of story. Let's move on. Right? No. Actually, that is not the case. It very well could be the resurrection that Paul is speaking of. But I tend to believe that Paul has a wider parameters in mind here. And there's good reason to believe this. The first reason is this. The word attain in verse 11... And the word attained in verse 12 are different Greek verbs. They are not the same Greek verb. And that is why in other translations of your Bible, in verse 12, you will find the word obtain. Obtain. In fact, a more literal rendering of these two verses would be this. If by any means I may come to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained or am already perfected, So, we see Paul using two different verbs. Is he doing this for a reason, we need to ask. If Paul, and here's where we we begin to interpret and we begin to speculate and we begin to consider context and figure out what is it 
that is the object of Paul's verbs in verses 12 and 13. If Paul, if Paul intended us to think that he was speaking exclusively of attaining the resurrection in verse 12, it would have been very, very easy, very, very sensible for him to use the same Greek verb in verse 11 in verse 12. But Paul uses different verbs. Does this mean he was clearly not referring to the resurrection? No. What does it mean? If he uses a different verb in verse 11, in contrast to another verb in verse 12, and he uses six verbs without objects in verse 12 and 13, all of this should impress us to widen our parameters a bit. And on your sheet, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to make clear my position uh, as, I, as I understand the text. I believe that Paul is doing this. I would argue on your uh, sheet there. I would argue that just as Paul considers the multiplicity, the multiplicity of his former human confidences listed in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, he considers the multiplicity of those confidences to be worthless. So also in 3.12, Paul is admitting that he has not attained the multiplicity of Christ-focused intentions that he lists in verses 8 to 11. Paul is speaking in multiple terms here. He's saying the multiplicities of human confidences in verse 5 and 6, loss. The multiplicity of Christ-focused intentions that I have mentioned in verses 8 to 11, that is what I want. That is what I want. And so, the last sentence there on your sheet, thus the resurrection is a component of, a component of, but not the exclusive focus of what Paul has not fully attained in verse 12. The resurrection is a, is a part of that. Paul says, I have not attained the resurrection. But to relegate it simply to resurrection would be to take Paul's argument directly out of context. Paul is seeing a wider, a wider spectrum here. He's saying, what I, the multiplicity of things that I had under the Old Testament law, they are loss. They are like economic loss to me. But what I find in Christ, righteousness, the knowledge of Christ that is excellent, an experiential knowledge of, of His sufferings, knowing the power of His resurrection, being conformed to His death, if I may attain resurrection, these things, these multiple items are what Paul has not attained those of you that um, know Greek, just a few uh, maybe in the audience, this would be a constative aorist rendering of the first verb in verse 12. Again, technical I know, but I want, I want us to understand that, that Paul is, is really looking at this with a view to the multiplicity of things in verses 8 to 11. And he's using the first verb as a broader is painting a broader portrait a broader spectrum of what he has not attained in in what he has not perfected okay now let's get back to the practical side of things okay neil i understand that paul has not attained what he lists in verses 8 to 11 now uh, so what what is the what, can we get more practical how is paul going to react to the fact that he has not yet perfected how is he going to react to this? Did he anticipate being perfected? Is he discouraged now? What is Paul's reaction? Take a look again at verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already attained or obtained, 
or am already perfected. But notice, but I press on. I press on. This is Paul's motive in reaction to not having been perfected. He doesn't get discouraged. He says, I'm moving forward. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Paul is not discouraged. He moves forward. The language that we see here is very indicative of something that Scott Eichler spoke on at our beach night. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 talks about a runner pressing on for the prize. Very similar, very clear similarities between these two texts. But now we come to these final three verbs. And take a look. Uh, I pointed them out in red there for you. Lay hold, lay hold, and apprehended. Okay? Uh, here again, same Greek verb. All three of them. Same Greek verb. Um, it means to seize. It means to overtake. It means to grasp intensely. To make it your own. Interestingly enough, this, this verb is also used to describe the rapture overtaking us in 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, do not let this day overtake you as a thief. So it also, it, that this, this verb is used in terms of resurrection. And in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul talks about comprehending the width and depth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus in, in Ephesians 3, that's also the same Greek verb. Comprehend, to overtake, to seize knowledge and also to not be seized by the resurrection. So Paul uses this verb to describe a more comprehensive uh, view of the Christian walk here. He's saying, I want to lay hold the things that I list in verse 8 to 11. The same things for which Jesus Christ laid hold of me. Christ literally seized Paul, we know, on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Remember? Jesus appeared to Paul, and it was an overtaking, if you will. Paul was on his knees and he said, what do I do? Who are you, Lord? He was overtaken by the Lord Jesus Christ physically. And moreover, he was called to a special calling spiritually. And Paul says, I want to seize Christ as he has seized me. I want to seize Christ as he has seized me. But he reminds us again, verse 13, but I do not count myself to have seized to have fully apprehended, to have fully comprehended Christ. And so, in what manner is Paul going to strive for Christ? In what manner is Paul going to strive for attaining and being perfected? Take a look at the end of verse 13. Paul says this, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead. I have not arrived, Paul says at the onset of verse 13, just as I've said throughout verse 12, I have not arrived. We have not arrived. But this is what I will do. This is what I will do. Forget the things which are behind me. I wonder what those things are. And I will strive forward to the things that are in front of me. It seems based on context that Paul again is alluding to what he's just spoken of. Again, if you were here last week, we talked about the many confidences that Paul listed in verses 5 and 6. The many confidences that he had in the Jewish law. He thought that he was going to be perfect, righteous before God, 
And, and when he approached God in the last day, he thought at the time, being a Jew, following the law, he thought that God would say, well done. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. But Paul says in verse 7, he says, no, I count all those things as a loss. So what is he forgetting? What is behind him? He's forgetting verses 5 and 6. He's forgetting the things that are his former confidences. You and I need to leave behind what we think earns us in our own human flesh, what we think earns us favor with God. We need to leave those things behind. Um, the, the typical person today, you ask them, why are you going to heaven? They say, because I'm a good person. Paul says, we need to forget those things. The human confidences, forget them, leave them behind. They are behind and let them stay there. And instead, we need to reach forward to the things that are ahead. The same things Paul lists in verses 8 to 11. The same Christ-focused intentions that he lists in verses 8 to 11. These are the things that he is going to strive for. And notice the words things here. That's why we, that's why we have good reason to believe that that they align as I've listed here because it's a multiplicity of things that he's forgetting. It's a multiplicity of things that he's going after, if you will. He's leaving the many human confidences in verses 5 and 6. He's striving after the Christ-focused intentions of verses 8 and 11. And I, I suppose I ask the question to all of us, what are we striving for? Are we putting ourselves in a position to reach for what is listed in verses 8 to 11 from our study the other Sunday? Are we in a position to reach for those things? To know Christ, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, being found in Him, not having a righteousness which is from the law, but a righteousness which comes by faith in Christ. Are we putting ourselves in a position to reach for maturity in Christ? Verse 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14 is an illustration, um, plain and simple. Paul's not saying anything new in this verse. In fact, he's using, he's beginning to use a metaphor. He's saying, he's using, he's, he's, uh, Comparing, rather, if you will, the, what he's been mentioning throughout this text in chapter 3 with someone going after a prize. Someone intending to achieve a prize. And Paul here is illustrating what he's been discussing throughout this text. And he uses similar language. He says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word goal there. It's actually a goal marker. It's to have your eyes fixed on something that helps you achieve the goal. What is the prize? You know, um, at times we try to get very esoteric with Scripture and we say, well, the prize is, you know, we, we try to make something up when the text has already revealed the prize. If verse 14 is an illustration, which I would submit it is, then that means that the prize listed in verse 14 has already been mentioned. It's already been spoken of. And Paul is using verse 14 as an illustration that we are to strive for the prize. By the way, I've, I've already talked to you about the prize. 
And I've already repeated it a number of times, Paul says, the prize, the upward call of God is what we see in verses 8 to 11. The prize is not relegated to resurrection. Resurrection is a component of it. But Paul is speaking of a multiplicity, a multifaceted approach to his Christian walk. And he says, the prize that I am striving for, the goal that I am shooting for, as I am giving this illustration in verse 14, I am seeking after it as I would a prize, and that prize I've already mentioned, and I've mentioned it multiple times. It is the same prize listed in verses 8 to 11. The same prize. It encompasses resurrection, yes. It encompasses what is to come, future glorification. But it also involves, in the here and now, appropriating eternal life, appropriating Christ in me, into my life, that I might be more like Him. That I might lay hold of eternal life now. And so we see here the prize of the upward call. Literally in Greek, we, we might read it the prize that is the upward call. This is a prize that Paul is pressing into, verses 11 and 12, excuse me, verses 12 and 14, and he, a prize that he is reaching for in verse 13. This prize is none other than the full realization and appropriation of verses 8 to 11. Paul makes this a little more clear in a passage in 1 Timothy 6, and I wanted to share it with you. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says this, But you, O man of God, speaking to Timothy, but you, O man of God, flee these things. He was talking about money there. He's saying, get rid of the, the desire for riches. Flee these things and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And notice this. Lay hold. Seize. Lay hold on eternal life. To which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul says, seize it now. We, we can't just look at the destination and say, I'm content in the destination. I'm content in the final arrival and I'm not going to worry about the here and now. That is not the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. To await the resurrection only, solely, to say, you know what, I'm going to sit back. I know I've got fire insurance because I believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And I'm going to sit back, enjoy my life, and uh, I know what's coming in the future. That is not the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? That is not the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus is the appropriation of eternal life now. It's saying, I know what I have, and I am going to experience that life right now. I am going to live as Christ. I am going to attempt to fathom the power of His resurrection. The same resurrected Christ that lives in me, I have the power that lives in me from the resurrected Christ. I am going to use the power of God in my life to affect others. I am going to share in His sufferings. I am going to be conformed to His death. And yes, I will be raised, verse 11. He says, I know I'm attaining resurrection. But oh, there's so much more to that. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus is not only the destination, but it is the journey. It is the journey. Verse 15. 
Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Here we see Paul saying that maturity is attainable in life. In fact, the word for mature here is actually the same word he uses for I am not already perfect in verse 12. So he says, I'm not already perfected, and yet as many of us as are perfect, but he's using them in two different senses. He says, I'm not, I've not achieved final perfection, but I am on the path. I am maturing in Christ. And as many of us as are maturing, those of us who are on this journey, let us have this mind. Which mind is that? The mind that says that I have not already attained perfection, that I have not already attained the prize, that I am simply on the journey and I need to be fully aware that I am not, I have not fully arrived. I have not arrived. Let that mind be in you, Paul says. Then he goes on to say, but if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Now, actually, it's more the idea of since some of you think otherwise. Um, apparently, according to the way in which this is worded here in verse 15, um, Paul is, is indicating that there are some in Philippi who think that they have arrived. Um, I would venture to say that you probably know of people who think they have arrived, don't you? Um, perhaps all of us have fallen victim to that at one point in our life or another. We, we think, well... Yeah, I've arrived. I'm better than so-and-so over there. And, I'm, you know, I'm in the top five percentile. Uh, I've arrived. We can identify with that a little bit. And we know folks who maybe exude that. And Paul's saying, there are some of you at Philippi who think you've arrived. But he doesn't appeal to what he's just written. He doesn't say, now reread what I just said to you because you're wrong. He says, no. He says, there are some of you who think that you, are, you have still arrived in spite of what I've just mentioned all throughout this text. And so I leave it in the hands of God. God will reveal it to you. Paul steps back and says, if you still think this way, even God will reveal this to you. God will be the one who enlightens. What he's saying here is that God is the agent of change. God is the agent of change. Paul is not the agent of change. Humans are not the agent of change. It is God who enlightens. God who inspires. God who causes us to be transformed. And this, friends, should give us... This simple phrase should, should cause us to pause and to think, hmm, I am not responsible for the transformation of others. I know in my own life I have been burdened in the past when I have witnessed with somebody, maybe a family member or somebody I dearly love, and I, I share with them the gospel and they don't respond, and I, I begin to get frustrated. I list it up there. Do you ever find yourself burdened because you cannot change someone's attitude or belief system? I think the answer is yes there, for most of us at least. I know I have been very frustrated at times where I've, I've done all I could. I thought, oh man, I really nailed the gospel that time. I really gave it to them. There's no way they can say no. They have to believe now. And yet they go, oh, that's, that's, that's nice for you. And then they walk on their way. And I look at myself and I go, what did I do wrong? Um, 
But Paul says, you're not the agent of change. You're not the agent of change. You're not the one who makes it grow. You, you plant and you water, but God gives the growth. God makes the change. And we can rest in that. And so if you find yourself frustrated that you can't change someone in their belief system, if you're frustrated with, with maybe uh, your spouse, that your marriage is in conflict, and you say, well, but I think my spouse should be doing A, B, and C, you, you can't change your spouse. You can pray for your spouse, and you can show Christ to your spouse. You can epitomize Jesus Christ to your spouse, but you can't change your spouse. God is the only one who can do that. And so in all of our relationships, we need to realize that, hey, leave it in the hands of the Lord. Pray for them. Do all you can to be Christ-like to them. But God is the only one who's going to change them. Verse 16. Nevertheless, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. To the degree that we have already attained, this, this word attained is actually a third different Greek verb for the word attained. So in your New King James, you have the word attain in verse 11, you have attained in verse 12, and then you have um, attained again here in verse 16. They're all three different Greek verbs, completely different verbs. So that can be a little confusing, I know, but Paul, but Paul here really does mean a, a similar thing. He's saying, hey, we're on the path. We, we, we are attaining this we are appropriating this in part in this life. There is a degree of perfection that we are on the path of. And he says, to, the, to that degree that you have attained, continue to walk by that same rule. Be of that same mind. Virtually, this is a restatement of what you saw in verse 15. As many as are mature, have this mind. If, you're on, if you... Mature to a certain degree. Have this mind. Be of the same mind. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Brethren, a term of endearment. You are like family to me in the faith, Paul calls them. And he says, he enjoins the Philippians to, to follow the pattern he has set. Follow me, Paul says. Something every leader must be able to say. Follow me. But moreover, and he did this so masterfully at the end of verse two, or at the end of chapter two. Go back to the end of chapter two if you remember in our study. Paul was weaving in these phrases and sentences that indicated that he wanted to build unity in the body. And he said back in chapter two, he said uh, regarding Epaphroditus, the messenger that he was sending back. He says, "For indeed." He was sick. I'm sending him to you, Paul says, for indeed he was sick uh, almost unto death. Excuse me, verse 26. Paul is saying, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you. And notice verse 26 in chapter 2. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. I made this, this statement a couple sermons ago. Paul didn't need to say that. He could have just said, hey, I'm sending back your sick friend, Epaphroditus. He's sick and I'm sending him back. But Paul says, no, he was longing for you. He was distressed because he knew that you had heard he was sick. And that simple verse in verse 26 of chapter 2 was building unity in the body of Philippi. Paul was using that to say, hey, look at, your, look at your leader who is loving and caring for you. And so also we see in verse 17, he says, Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. He says, look around your church. 
There are people in this church, Paul says, that, that you can imitate. What a unity building comment that is. What camaraderie Paul is engendering here. This simple phrase, note those who so walk. Paul is contributing toward the unity, toward the health of the body of Christ in that church. I am your pattern. You, and you have a pattern from others in this church. Follow these patterns. Okay, we come to the end. So what? How do we apply? What do we take from this study of Scripture? The first is this. And I won't be... Again, I'm not being ultimately dogmatic on this matter. If someone wants to tell me that what Paul has not attained is strictly the resurrection, I'm not going to argue vehemently against that. I think that Paul does mean resurrection, but I think he means so much more than resurrection. But in my humble opinion... Based on the context, the first application is something we need to know about the text. Know this. Philippians 3, 8-11 is the prize and upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which Paul has not perfected, but nevertheless reaches for. It is the prize. Our destination is not simply the prize. It is also appropriating Christ in our life here and now. Number two, you who are Christians, does your life exude, display, Christ's likeness and the eternal life that you possess in Him. You have the capacity to exude Christ to others, to exude that life eternal that is in you to others. Are you doing that? Three, God is the agent of change. He alone enlightens our minds and enables us to understand His truth. You and I, we can't change people. We don't transform people. We plant and we water, but God makes things grow. And four, simple, identify folks at Coast who are worth imitating and imitate them. In so doing, you will be contributing to the health and the unity of the body. I would really encourage you to do this. In fact, I would encourage you to walk up to the person whom maybe you say, you know what, I see this in your life and I hope to appropriate that in my life. I see that you're doing so-and-so. I see that, that you have a certain kind of relationship with Christ and that really impresses me and I intend to follow in your footsteps. You know what that would do to the health and unity of this body? It would absolutely cement it together. For you to be able to walk up to someone in this church and say, I appreciate this about you, and I I see that you're following Christ here, and I'm going to follow in your footsteps as you're doing this. Certainly we don't put people up on a pedestal. We put Christ on the pedestal. But Paul himself says, hey, you can follow those in your church who are still following Christ. We have not arrived. We have not arrived. The destination is still ahead, but the journey is right before us. And the prize that we are striving for is contained in verses 8 to 11. I encourage you to meditate on those verses and to not only look at the destination ahead of us, but to focus on the journey that is now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Your Word is rich and powerful. And it is utterly instructive, Lord. It is so helpful as we prioritize, as we, as we say, what is the good life? How do I live to the fullest? Father, these are questions that the world asks and that Your Word offers answers to. There is a great prize that we are to strive after, Lord. It is contained utterly in the person of Jesus Christ in gaining Him, in knowing Him, 
in experiencing Him, both here and as we await final perfection in the resurrection. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who is not even on this journey yet, who does not know Your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that You would impress upon their hearts as You are the agent of change, that all they need to do is to believe in Your Son, Jesus Christ, for eternal life, and they are on the journey. If they believe in Your Son, they are on the journey. What a marvelous truth, Lord. Help us who are mature and who are on this journey already to move forward in maturing and becoming perfect in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.